Hello and welcome to your mother's moist clitoris. I'm James Hall. Welcome to the death of your father. I'm Daniel P. Brown. And we let's just get straight into where we left off last week. Let's get straight to the point should in we, 20 should seconds. We, should we do that? Why, why would we do that? <laughs> quick, 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 quick. What about, you know, asking the listener, hello, how are you? Good. Yeah. <laughs> and how are you? How am I? Yeah. Mm, yeah, I'm... I'm okay. I'm okay. Is I, that the desirable mean as opposed to the unsustainable high or the plummeting despair of the low? Mm, uh, no, that's the, that's the sort of average. That's the mean. Because yeah. I've been a bit higher than the average this week. Oh, why is that? Just because I like being warm and the sun. Uh-huh. And so uh-huh. it's, very, it's been quite warm in London, similar to... My life in Montpellier, to be honest. Have oh. I mentioned that I lived in Montpellier? For, for, the, for the listener who's forgotten, I uh, spent some time in Montpellier where the skies are always blue and the sun is always out. And I used to uh, sit in my little building with its, in the garden of someone's house there. And some of us ask, why did you come back? <laughs> you know, why? Why would you do that to yourself? Well, I have come back because obviously I immediately went on to um, teach after that. But fast forward a year, I have come back. And now the skies are blue in London. The temperatures are high in London. Uh, With lockdown, I'm not going into the office. So I'm basically enjoying the terrace outside above the old private practice. That's right. You're, You're living the high life. I bet you're glad you initiated the small talk now, aren't you? Yeah, it's great. No regrets. No regrets at all. So do you want to get into it now or do you want to carry on with the small talk? Your your choice. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think we'll get into it now, So, welcome on board the dream boat. Oh, the dream boat. Or is it the submarine of defence mechanisms? No, I think the dream boat is just more fun. Okay, but, well, we're going to go into the defence mechanisms. So, it's a dream boat, but it launches grenades and weapons and things. It's a, it's a um, what do you call a war boat? Not Battleship? The a battleship, that's the word. Battleship of... Dreams and defence mechanisms. Dreams, a battleship of dreams and defence mechanisms. It's not quite as snappy as your dream boat that you started with, is it? <laughs> but anyway, we'll go on. Battleship of dreams and defence mechanisms. Well, it's more like defence mechanisms and dreams are two categories of the unconscious that are quite significant to the ideas of Freud and then Carl Jung. And they're the things that we haven't really talked about in the um, mini-season on the unconscious so I'm shoving them in now and they don't necessarily need to go together and so therefore there is absolutely no need for a boat to be both a dream boat and a battleship 
but as we will come to with condensation and displacement and the sort of like abstract censorship of dreams whereby your father is also your lover it is entirely appropriate for the dream boat to also be a battleship and for a discussion about dreams to also be a discussion about defense mechanisms great so the first one and, and remind us again sorry the first one of what they're just defense mechanisms as defined by whom so this is the book The Unconscious by Phil Mollen and he says Freud and later psychoanalysts have described many ways in which human beings attempt to hide emotional truth from themselves ooh okay alright listen up if you guys want to hide emotional truth from yourself employ these battleship tactics in at number five repression hold on one two three four yes well done there are five Oh, thank you. How did you know that? Because last week, or whenever it was, we might have recorded the episode before this, we spoke about the five categories. I didn't think I would be so mundane as to count them last time. Oh, no, no, no. You are very mundane. (laughs) Continue. In at number five. Repression. Excellent. Everyone loves a bit of repression. Can you give an accessible relatable example of repression well i think one of the things that we probably you know would be you know most useful to everyone is in the present we have some outrageous fear or disgust of something or or we're appalled by a certain idea or set of people even um but you know really obvious ones are like spiders and blood and and quite often wherever that came from wherever that traumatic frightening uh, uncontainable emotion was in our early childhood usually the memory is so awful so terrible that we have something going on in our brain that allows us to repress it just stop us from remembering that thing so you're saying that it starts in childhood development i'm saying it can do that it came from the unconscious um I don't, i'm not sure if that's socratic irony but it was basically what what do you call that i i was i don't know yeah what, what were you what i was thinking okay fact james hall fact that comes from childhood but i thought no i won't present this as a james hall fact i won't be that sure of myself i'll ask you so dan are you saying the thing that i want to believe that is true because that's what i think reassure me dan and then you said no Okay, yeah. So we also know that if someone has been raped as an adult or has been through any kind of trauma as an adult or a a teenager, they're also able to repress at least parts of that memory because it is so painful. I think it's just more more generally thought of as something you know if we're making it really accessible and it's about why you're so petrified of spiders or why you don't like blood or one of these sort of obsession phobia things that we we cling on to um then potentially if there was a a real cause for it rather than some kind of like psychological um uh quandary that's decided to be latched upon a spider or blood if, if there was a cause for it then it can be repressed and and replaced with something else. So I think this episode will probably, will probably, I'm just, no, I'm going to ditch these niceties. I I, I, I really struggle with labels because 
I, I am coming to the conclusion that I definitely do think visually, unless I have already distilled thoughts in my mind or I'm kind of mocking and I'm sort of like reflecting back something that I already understand, in which case words flow from me and I can easily do that sort of Russell Brand or Stephen Fry thing of just churning out loads of flowery words. Yeah, you're just like both of them. (laughs) Um, But most of the time I can't do that. Most of the time I get a complete block when I visualise an idea and I think, who's going to put this into words? And then I think, no one is going to put this into words because they don't know what I'm visualising. So I think I've got to do it. And I think, okay, I've already spent too much time. The other person hasn't... Right, it's obvious from the other person's face that they are now concluding that I can't put this into words. Now I can't put this into words. Now it is confirmed that I've failed to put this into words. Now the arm is just... The arm is ongoing, the arm is still coming out, the arm hasn't turned into the words yet. We're still waiting for the words. When are the words going to come, James? Come on. You remember that time when you were mocking someone the other day and the words just started flowing and you were funny and they laughed? Why aren't you doing that now, James? Where is it now? Where is it? Come on, where are the words? They're nowhere, are they? You're still arming and you've still got the idea, but you don't have the words. That happens to me a lot. Yeah, yeah. Okay, 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 okay. And you were saying something along the lines of we're probably going to. Yes. And then I was about to change that to we are going to as a as a kind of I, I find it slight. You might disagree with this, but I find it slightly revolting. All the things that I play up about my character when we're recording sort of like the the fact that I'm wonderful and supreme and perfect and better than everyone else and Mm -hmm. divine and everything I do is perfect and no one else is as good as me and all that sort of stuff all the lies it's all very easy to come out with that shtick because those are all the things in my upbringing that I was that I kind of internalize as but you can't as you can't be like this you can't show off you can't seek attention and fame and notoriety and all those that's bad um and not not so much that it's bad like morally good or bad or like um you know you mustn't lie you mustn't steal and you mustn't seek attention I don't mean it like that it's more like I, I absorbed this distaste for showing off and I I always wanted to show off in school just because I'd moved around so many different schools and then when I was settled in one school I generally didn't participate in things because I didn't know how to I would have to observe from the outside and then when I sussed things out when I got to know the way things worked and I was ready to participate no one was ready for me to participate I was just the silent one who didn't participate so in order to shove my way in and I didn't really know how to do that appropriately the only thing I could think of was to draw attention to myself by making people laugh. So having sussed out the different characters in the classroom or whatever it was, um, and everyone was equal, I, the teachers and the, all the kids that were the ones that were the sort of like at the top of the food chain, the bullies or the sporty ones or the most attractive ones, and those at the bottom, the ugly, spotty, not very confident, slightly awkward ones, they were all equal as far as I was concerned for as a, they were all game for te- I, I was ready to tear them all down with my humor as in the court jester tearing everyone down although obviously I really wanted those at the top of the food chain to be surprised in their appreciation of me 
they thought that I was nothing. They thought that I was just a silent wallflower, sort of a bit of wallpaper, didn't even notice me. And I wanted to suddenly make them laugh or be clever or something like that and impress them. And they'd think, I wanted them to basically think, gosh, I was wrong for ignoring James Hall. I must now pay attention to him. He has value. And so I would sit there and I would scheme and I would come up with ways of being funny and I would suddenly deliver out of the blue the funny and quite often it would be something inappropriate like I would just out of the blue take the piss out of the teacher and there'd be a, a sudden, there'd be a short silence of shock. The teacher is in shock because it's a case of you don't do that but then the teacher would be laughing because I'd done it really well and it was funny and then the teacher would be thinking oh I've laughed now I can't punish him and then all the other kids had basically got permission to laugh because the teacher was laughing and then the best thing the teacher could do is just move on as quickly as possible and hope that it wasn't going to establish itself as a pattern so those sorts of things happened in school but it was I was very crafty at doing that because the ultimate failure as far as I was concerned was to try and attempt that and to not be funny, and to just draw attention to myself with no talent. And so then growing up as a teenager, especially with the strong influence of my aunt who hated celebrity culture and would sit mocking people, because it was really the heyday of, it was when Big Brother had started and all that sort of stuff. It was the beginning of everyone is now going to get their 15 minutes of fame. You don't even have a choice in it, you're all going to be famous. And my, my aunt would sit in her armchair and she would critique this. And I really respected her views on everything. And therefore, I just absorbed how distasteful it was to draw attention to yourself if you have no talent. And even people with talent really have to nail it. Otherwise, they've done a disservice and they failed themselves. So all of that monologue that I've just delivered is because... I'm not going to lie, I was wondering <laughs> what this has to do with um, repression. Well, that is a repressed idea. So I find it very easy to see in other people when they are trying to be funny and failing. Or try I mean, it's, it's not necessarily a special skill that I have that no one else has. It's more that it is the first thing that I notice about someone quite often is that they drew attention without, according to my value judgments, being funny or clever enough and that they don't deserve that attention. And if they get the attention, then they really are singled out as the enemy. Hmm. Wait, so how is it repressed? If you're completely aware of it? Um... Oh, well, I don't think I was aware of it for a long time. So lots of things where I can talk about them on the podcast in relation to these subjects are things that I've tried to work out. I see. So this is the process. So the process of psychotherapy is to unrepress these things. So I want to go back to when I said to you, repression occurs in childhood. I'm trying to vaguely follow some of the threads that I've weaved into this episode I so mean, far. Why not? You know. So. I'm just going to say something and I don't care if it's accurate or not. I just need to get it out and then we can look at it. In childhood, you basically create your shadow or your repressed ideas. or you, It's not quite the same as being socialised in the sense of it's not just learning to 
share and to not hit people it's if you absorb a value judgment like the one i just gave do not show off it is distasteful to draw attention to yourself if you absorb that it creates this repressed idea that any time you show off or any time anyone shows off it needs to be harshly the superego needs to get get some criticism in immediately and shut that down but you're allowed to show off because you do it properly no 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 forget me okay right okay 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 maybe don't use the same example then because we were talking about oh, okay you what can you repress you could repress strong sexual urges towards other men when you're a boy okay fine so <laughs> you have absorbed that sexual urges towards other men when you're a boy it's wrong and so you feel like in order to function in society you can't have those urges you won't get friends you won't be you'll be disowned by your family you won't get admiration respect people you won't get anything that you're trying to get in life yeah but obviously that's quite complex that it is more i'm bad you know it's it's more simple than that if you're a child isn't it oh, okay yeah. i'm dirty i'm bad i'm disgusting my parents might hate me you know something okay. quite simple i'm bad because i look at the penises in the showers yeah something like that so you repress that and you angrily have sex with women for a long time. Potentially. <laughs> and then, and, and, and there's a reason for that. Because when you're a child, you can only think in terms of this is good or bad or something that's not as complex as adult philosophy. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be as simple as good or bad, but for the case of this example i think it's best if we keep it simple so as a child you can only think of things as being good or bad so you have to repress the bad things because you can't hold the bad things in consciousness like the divinely enlightened adult in the psychotherapy room having the enriching conversation with the analyst the four-year-old can't do that or however the eight-year-old who's oh no, the, the what age would be looking at the penises in any school. age it doesn't matter okay. they're not paedophiles if they look at men's penis no but what age would they be thinking of a naked man in a shower well, as a sexual object it, as opposed to it just depends just... It, it you know it, it really is that's a very complex area okay. just just doesn't matter to say young as your example yeah i know but it doesn't matter is okay. what i'm saying so the young ish boy who is not yet 16 but is more than a fetus is in the showers looking at all the penises and instead of just seeing nature indistinguishable from the plants in the garden this is now particular nature that is sexual sexually arousing and the the boy cannot process that information like the enlightened adult in the therapy room. The boy cannot philosophize about, oh gosh, will society reject me if I... But the boy cannot do that. The boy can only think this is good or bad, this is right or wrong. I am good or bad. I am good or yeah. bad because this is right or wrong. Yeah. So therefore the boy has to repress that which is bad because the boy cannot manage it. An adult can manage and for the purposes of psychoanalysis, needs to manage their shadow, needs to manage those repressed ideas in order to be an integrated, independent, become self. 
to use Carl Rogers with the wrong grammar. But a child can't do that, so that's why they repress these ideas. Now, I'm stating that as fact. I don't know if you agree or disagree. Yeah, I thought, I thought we got to that. I thought that's where we came from. You repress something that you can't accept or you press something that is so emotionally painful, trauma, that you can't have the images and thoughts and feelings associated with it in your mind. So for you know, a small child, whatever it is, so when I was little, I went to the chest of drawers in the hall and there was all kinds of exciting things in there, you know, like ridiculous, like um, playing cards or some dice or some scissors or um, a pack of envelopes or stamps or um, a bottle of wine. There was all kinds of things like that in it. And in this box was a glass peanut holder that was in the shape of an owl. And when you tapped it, it didn't feel like glass. So I was curious. I must have been about six or seven, maybe eight at the most. So I thought, right, well, the only way I can know if it's glass is if I drop it. So I went out to the conservatory and I dropped it on the stone floor. And lo and behold, it smashed and it was glass. And that instant, I thought, I'm bad. I remember, I remember thinking it. And I might even have said something along the lines of, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. Oh my God, I'm bad, I'm bad. Thinking, my parents are going to kill me, you know? They're going to kill me because this glass peanut holder in a box in the corridor in the chest of drawers was smashed. So I put it back and I put it all back in the box and I went and hid it slightly further back in the cupboard and I said nothing to anyone. But I know that for a long, long time I would walk past that and just think I am bad. I am bad. You know? So I don't know whether I repressed for a long time after that the memory of purposefully breaking something to see if it would break. But there was there's a very clear example of how black and white it was. Yeah, so so that's why when, I, when you said something or other or other, <laughs> I then said that comes from childhood development. Or other, that was when I said, are you saying it comes from childhood development? What I was really saying was, I think it comes from childhood development. Yeah. The reason that repressed stuff comes from childhood development, I am proposing, is because you have to repress the stuff in childhood when you're not able to think in complex terms of philosophy it has to just be black and white good or bad because that's all you can understand as a, as a child and it's it when, when you're an adult you can then think well especially if you study ethics and things you can look at the curious child essentially conducting a scientific experiment to work out the nature of the material of an object of his curiosity and you can justify that that is a good act. That is a, an excellent example of curiosity, scientific investigation, uh, a child who's trying to feed his knowledge for physical material understanding. You want to know what glass is. What are the properties of glass? Does something smash? What happens when it smashes? What does it look like? Good, curious, science child, tick excellent gold star well done best report ever this child will be a genius he's curious the child who doesn't smash the weird owl peanut holder i really can't even 
picture this to be honest from that let's draw you a picture okay mm-hmm. the, the, the boring child who has no curiosity to smash it they'll never be an entrepreneur they'll never learn anything at school unless they absorb it parrot fashion they'll just be a good little worker sitting at the tills of Sainsbury's doing what they're told and at the same time, they're going to be a bit of a liability because they won't have a particularly satisfying life. So they'll constantly turn to booze and then they'll probably beat up their wife because really they're a homosexual and they're only having angry sex with a woman to prove to the world that they're not wrong. The good child is the one who smashes the owl because that's the curious, intellectual, scientific genius. Well, my therapist found it thoroughly enjoyable and had a good giggle at that story, so... You may be right, but you're arguing that repression happens in childhood, blah, 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 blah. 20 minutes later, we're no closer to the truth, which is repression can happen at any age. You're no, repressing on, an talk- idea. No, no, that's, we're completely talking past each other here. Nothing I've said was responded to by you in that comment. And you're, the thing that you keep repeating, I haven't even talked about that. So we're totally talking past each other. So... I I just gave lots of words to explain how the child smashing the owl is a good thing, which yeah. is not how you felt. You felt bad, and I'm and I just gave as an as a thirty whatever I am thirty three year old adult. Yeah, I just gave lots of words to justify the child smashing the owl as being the good child, and the child who doesn't smash the owl being the bad child. So I judge the two children. One smashes the owl, one doesn't. The the owl smasher is the good child. That child will be Elon Musk in the future. The child that smashes the glass is not going to be Elon Musk because you're not sitting in front of Elon Musk. And neither are you looking at two delinquent wife beaters who are my two brothers that didn't smash the owl. So you're also talking as if you're an ethicist or whatever they're called because that was the character you gave yourself. Okay. Someone who's in an ethics course could go this and that. A child smashes the owl and the child, because they're a child, thinks, oh, I'm a bad person because I smashed the owl. And that's it. The end. Stupid child does not have the brains to work out that actually this is a sign of curiosity. This can be justified as a good thing. This is a clue that one day they might be the brainy Elon Musk entrepreneurial scientific discoverer of everything in the world because they have the curiosity to smash the owl. The child cannot philosophize beyond I'm bad to look at that argument and think, but what's the counter argument? Am I good? And then to weigh up those two arguments and think, actually... They're both of equal value. So therefore, I cannot say that I am bad and know that to be true because I also know that it is good to smash the owl. Gosh, what an intellectual child I am. I really am a philosopher at the age of four. Aren't I a genius? The child can't do that. The child can only think good or bad and the child thinks bad. Is that now a little bit clearer? Well, I understood that part all along. You're talking about this adult who... So that, so that is why repression happens in childhood, because the child cannot work out that they're actually good because they smashed the owl. The child can only call themselves bad because that's simple black and white. Smash things are bad, non-smash things are good, I smashed it, therefore I'm bad. They cannot think beyond that, they're a child. Okay. So they repress ideas... They might want to smash everything to find out what it's made of. But because the one time they did it, they felt like it was bad and they're a bad person. All their desire to smash everything in the world to find out what it's made of is repressed. Because 
that would mean every single time that they would the next time they see an object say a decorative plate on the wall and they think is that made of plastic or china there's only one way to find out smash it on the conservatory floor and then they think no the last time I did that, I felt bad and I had to sweep it up and I had to put it in the back of the cupboard. And I had to make sure no one found it. And I still have nightmares about that today. And I know I'm a bad person and I hate myself and I'm not going to be able to function as a human being if I intensify this badness. I've got to try and be good. So I really mustn't smash the plate. But I really want to. I want to know if it's porcelain or plastic. I really want to smash that plate. Nope, I can't. It will make me feel bad again. The child does not want to feel bad and think they're a bad person, so they repress it. But why? But not. Ev- what makes them think they're bad? Number one, smashing a bird with nuts in it. What else makes them think they're bad? I don't understand. What do you mean? You're saying if that- they're the kind of child that picks up a glass. Here's the picture. Yeah. Can you see? Yes. I it's can a see single it. piece of glass. You yeah. pour in the peanuts at the start of the dinner party and put it on the table, and the adults go, "Oh, how quirky!" Tip it up and pour it out. It's a single piece, you know, like. There's no like lid or anything like that that I remember. Anyway, the kind of child that smashes a glass thing does a whole bunch of things that okay, end up with to him. me. He, Number one. He sets fire to the rope on the swing in the garden and it burns weirdly. And he thinks he's bad because he did that. Obviously, yes. No, it's not obvious at all. I'm desperately clinging well, it's to obvi- facts here. It's obvious. Another thing. What else makes him feel bad? Wetting the bed. Great. Another one. Um, tearing a page out of a book. And all, so all of these things the child does and somehow the child knows that he's bad for doing it, even if... Thinks that he's bad for doing it. Believes that he's bad for doing it. That's what I mean by knows. Because to the child's tiny brain, I'm deliberately using these words to diminish the child, to really make this point as clear as I can. Uh The the fact that the child cannot rationalise like an adult. This child knows that it's bad and i say knows because it's not a fact it's just it's it's not a fact to an adult it's a fact to a child who then grows up and realizes oh i knew that was bad and now i realize that i was wrong because i was a child and it wasn't bad but the child knows that it's bad because the child knows nothing yep is that a better way of describing it if you like yep so the child knows that it's bad why why is it bad? Why does the child know that it's bad to set fire to the rope and it burns? Because of things the parents have said. Okay. What? I, okay. Let me just let me just say something as if it's fact. This is what I'm trying to say. Children are too stupid to do philosophy and to think critically. They can only think in black and white, and so they can't deal with life. And so when they smash the thing, they they can't understand it. So. The stupid child mind thinks this is bad and the stupid child mind believes that that's true. And so then somehow, I'm really confused now, repression happens. Something is repressed. The idea that I'm bad is repressed. I don't really understand this now. It's it's really simple, James. It's really simple. Say it's totally simple. that a child or an adult can't bear to think as it is with a huge judgmental attachment or a huge element of fear but what is the something is it the fire the actual physics of the fire of the rope in the garden or is it the thought of my parents will know that i set fire to things or is it the thought of i do things 
and don't know the outcomes, therefore I must be bad. I don't know what is bad or I don't know what is repressed. So it can be an emotion that's repressed. What is the emotion of the fire? The child who sets fire, what is, or the child who drops the glass, what is the emotion that's repressed? The emotion is fear. The emotion fear is of what? being bad, being not loved anymore, fear of being punished. You're looking at me as if I should know this and it should be obvious and you're having to explain it is totally unnecessary and can someone just pick up James Hall and replace him with a normal human who knows this stuff? That's your facial expression yeah. at the moment. <laughs> because we started off and you, you, you said it, the, uh, the conversation I thought we were having was about whether repression happens only to children. Okay. I assumed you understood the basic concept of repression. Something happens, you don't like it. Yeah, keep so going. You, so this, is the, this is the language I want. Keep going. Something happens, you don't like it, so your brain works out a way, or unconsciously works out a way, to stop yourself thinking or feeling it. Okay, and that's repression. And that's repression. Okay, now, I, yes. That, that, that I, want, I mean, I wish you'd given that definition earlier so that we didn't have to try and I define really, repression. I cannot wait other. till you listen back to the beginning of what I said 33 minutes ago. Okay, and we're still on number one. Um, so that's what repression is. I am saying it happens in childhood. I'm not saying it never happens in adulthood, but I'm saying it has to happen in childhood because the child is too stupid to analyse like Jung. The child does not have psychoanalytic intellect or Aristotelian philosophical nuance to work out how they feel about the implications and the consequences and the ethics from all the schools of Western and Eastern philosophy dating back centuries okay, over, okay, what, okay, over okay. how they oh. should feel about the glass. Gosh, am I going to be utilitarian about this? What am I? I don't know. I'm only a four-year-old child and I don't know what utilitarian means. Am I going to believe that God is punishing me? Gosh, I'm only a four-year-old child. I don't know the ontological, teleological or other reasons to believe in God because I'm only a four-year-old child. So all I can do is tell myself that this is bad and now I will repress because it is bad. That's all I can do because I am simply four. That's why it happens in childhood. And then fast forward to that person lying on the th or sitting in the therapist's the Jungian analyst room sitting up, staring into the eyes of their analyst as opposed to lying back on the Freudian couch with the analyst masturbating behind their ears. Uh -huh. That person is now an adult and they are able to draw from the unconscious the repressed idea that they are a bad person and they can explore it with the analyst and they can come to the conclusion that I'm not a bad person because I smash things. I'm a curious, scientific, creative, wonderful person. And in order to be so creative, I sometimes have the urge to smash things because I virtuously want to know what they're made of. And I intellectually want to understand the properties of the material. And I excellently want to develop my understanding of the material world around me and that is gosh it's so good I really need to rewind and get all the gold stars that I really should have had for being such a wonderful child how wrong I was to think that I was bad 
that example is of a child, yeah. but, you, but you're suggesting that because a child cannot understand that when they smash something to discover something, they're not bad, perhaps careless, perhaps silly, perhaps they could have asked about the glass, there were other options, but they don't need to tell themselves they're bad. They don't need to then believe they're bad. They don't need to feel bad, shame, disgust, fear. But if you think an adult doesn't do the same thing every single fucking day about various different things, you know, wanting to have sex with their best friend's wife, hating their own children, you know, and then work out a way somehow to consciously not think about it until that memory is pushed down, that feeling, that disgust, that horror, that fear, that distastefulness, that self-loathing, that feeling of being bad. If you don't think adults do that, then, then I think you're highly mistaken. And okay, uh, Can I respond to that? Yes, please do. Okay, so that's absolutely not what I'm saying. And let me try and say what I'm saying. The child has to repress the idea of being bad because they're too stupid. The adult who also does everything that you've just said that I do not disagree with, all the things you're claiming I don't believe because I'm mistaken. I say that the adult hates their children. I say that the adult wants to have sex with their best friend's wife. And I say that the adult represses that, just like the child does the repression. But the difference is that the child has to repress it because they have no other way of dealing with it because they're four years old. Whereas the adult represses it because they, let's keep this simple, because they're lazy and stupid. The enlightened adult does not need to repress that. The enlightened adult sitting in the therapy room can talk about it. The, the enlightened adult can say, gosh, I had a strong feeling of wanting to have sex with my neighbor's wife and simultaneously murder my hateful children the other day. And I could really feel myself repressing that feeling and I don't know what to do about it because this is difficult for all humans, but because I'm not a four-year-old and I'm an adult, I'm bringing up this topic with you, therapist. What do you think? Well, yeah, hopefully someone in therapy at a certain stage can talk like that. Yeah. So that's the difference between the adult and the child. The child has to repress, whereas the adult doesn't have to repress. Uh -huh, but if you listen back, which I'm sure you will, you said multiple times repression starts in childhood yes and it does because it, it has to the child has to repress all the time because the child cannot cogitate what's an accessible word cannot thinky think process process understand understand the implications the consequences the different points of view of different adults about what they've done and so when they smash something that's bad the end I'm a child, I'm four, it's bad. I'm going to give you just one minute whilst I grab something for you to just think about this. Okay. There are many, many, many adults whose emotional and intellectual development is... It's exactly the same as the four-year-old I've just described. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I promise I will come back. I had no idea that trying to give an example of repression and explaining why it happens in childhood would be so difficult. Well, we're 47 minutes in and we've only got four to go. What did they say in the book? 
three words. <laughs> it says repression, open brackets, banishing from consciousness, closed brackets, the end. Right. Well, that settles that one. But that doesn't give the context of why the child banishes things from consciousness because they are unable to think it through. Yeah, no, no. Having managed to work for the last two minutes on my annoyance at the whole situation, I think you're probably right to pursue that one, James. Um, I'm just thinking, that whole uh, discussion about repression, I might just put at the end of the episode. So I'm going to do a little bit Ah. of continuity now (laughs) um so we just probably seconds ago we just announced uh that we would go through the five defense mechanisms uh that are laid out in phil mullen's book about the unconscious yeah and uh, number one we just talked about for half an hour so we're just going to go straight on to number two or in at number four actually because we're working backwards from five okay in at number four projection Oh. Now, can you give a nice accessible? <laughs> <laughs> can you use the words? Can you use the kind of words that that not only the four-year-old but even I will understand as an example of projection? Okay, well, something that's so abhorrent to the individual is put into someone else. So you might see someone else as a homosexual if you're that young man who can't stand the gay thoughts he's having towards other people who has repressed those thoughts or doesn't really bring them into consciousness so everyone else is gay okay perfect Mm -hmm. and i hate to i don't think this is opening a can of worms but that's what i was trying to get at with the idea of feeling that showing off especially if you have no talent is distasteful the idea that i internalized particularly from my aunt but probably from other people because it was I can vividly remember it being very strong. And actually, in fact, I can picture another person who helped me internalise this or hindered me, however you look at it. Um, There was some point when I was having one of my natural highs at school. Maybe I just had some sugar, but more likely it's just that that's how I always am. Mm -hmm. I tend to have a larger range of highs and lows than I see in people around me. And that's not the result of a scientific test that's just how i'm going to say it is so accept it or don't fine um and so i was i was having a high i was giddy with the thrill of the roller coaster of life that afternoon at school and i was i think i'd been making lots of jokes and people had laughed i'd had audience feedback and i was ride i it's like i was at glastonbury and i jumped into the audience and i was riding on their hands and crowd crowd surfing surfing. we call that yes and as was the case in a hundred percent of occasions certainly a hundred percent that i can remember i went too far oh james and i was in a public space so i i'd obviously been I'd obviously been getting carried away all day. So school started at whatever, 8 or 9 a.m. And by this point, it was sort of like 3 in the afternoon because it was definitely after lunch. And we we had sort of like activities in the afternoons and we'd have to walk from where most of the school buildings were to where things like the sports hall and that stuff was. And you, we went, you had to walk through a public square to get there. So it wasn't a closed, gated school campus. This was out there in the world. And out there in the middle of that public square... 
I was, I don't remember what I was saying or something, but I was giddy you on. You can't the, remember. High on the roller you coaster can't of life. Remember? I've repressed and I don't want to remember what it was that The I shameful was, things that you were saying. Yeah. And one of the boys around me specifically said, Oh, look, it's the attention seeker out again. Or as, as if I was some ogre under a bridge or under a rock and this disgusting thing had come out again and he felt compelled to state the situation so that I was aware of it for the first time. Nice. But I don't think that was the first time. I think I'd already internalised the idea of it being shameful to draw attention to yourself. And when you said you'd gone over the top or, or you, 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 know, you pushed things too far, do you remember what it was that caused this very astute young man to say to you that the attention seeker had reared his ugly head again? I just remember I was sort of like bouncing around and talking loudly and I don't remember what I was saying or doing. How did you feel? I felt like he had correctly judged me for distastefully showing off when the talent was not sufficient to justify the volume. Mm-hmm. And I felt like he was correct in judging that harshly. And I felt like, I mean, I definitely didn't have this thought, but I'm, my immediate association now is that I could have had a thought along, to, uh, to, just to illustrate this point. Yes. Yeah. Um, I could have had a thought along the lines of, if my aunt could see me now, how... A shame. A shame. Yes. When she judges the people on Big Brother and says that they're bad for having no talent and going on TV to show off their no talent... Mm-hmm. And I'm sat there in the room with her going, oh, yes, aunt, you're so... I never called her that. But Dear aunt. Yes, oh, yeah. oh, yes, aunt. Gosh, you're so intellectual. I really admire your thoughts. If she was here now seeing me shouting to try and make people laugh, but not being funny enough and therefore just amplifying my no talent, mm-hmm. she would be sick. Mm-hmm. And therefore I hated myself for being distastefully... Bad. And the interesting thing about this example, James, is that that young man who quite... How old did you say you were? Uh, 14, 15, something like that. Yeah, so this precocious little prick that decided (laughs) to call you out on your sense of fun and enjoyment of life and perhaps being somewhat hyped up because of, you know, being on a roll that day and being on form. Because if you were all at a festival and you were adults, someone might call you a show-off prick but it would all be in good fun you know but this young man decided to call you out on it yes like he was the adult and he was judging absolutely and you were pathetic i was the immature one yeah but the interesting thing is he may well have been projecting he may well have seen these traits in you that he found abhorrent in himself even more complex he might have repressed his desire to shout and make people laugh and show off and found it intolerable that I had the audacity to go ahead and do, to, to, to save Voldemort, to, to speak that which must not be spoken, to do the taboo of actually enacting the distasteful thing, amplifying my no talent. He thought, how disgusting that you actually did it. I want to do that. I tell myself, quote unquote, I know it's bad and I don't do it. I've got myself under control. You haven't. I will judge you for it openly. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that's not all going on consciously. And certainly not in a 14-year-old's mind because... Well, you know, they're basically adults. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, carry on. So, um, well, that's that one done, I think. In at number three. Oh, but also, just... Sorry. sorry. (laughs) That was perfect. I should now be saying number three. You should. That would have been brilliant radio. You're the professional. I'm the child. You are correct to assume the role of the adult, judging the immature one. But um, I do want to point out that... I tried to say at some point in this podcast that everything I've just... That whole example I've just given... Yeah makes me now highly attuned to when people shout their no talents. So I look at someone and I think, oh, you're being... If I go into a party and there's someone there who is being very loud Mm. and trying to make people laugh Mm. and I don't think they're funny or clever enough to justify their their volume compared with everyone else, I have shut that person... I have cancelled that person... You've deleted them. Just like that. Judge James comes in and deletes. Judge James has... Delete. Guilty. Absolutely. Guilty as charged. Death sentence. And I feel like now, and I'm not stating this as fact, I don't know how right or wrong I am in saying this, but I feel like now I am able to be more in the moment in that situation and instead of just judging, I can, I can, I could say, so, right, let me actually walk you through this. I go into the party, uh-huh. someone is shouting, I don't think they're funny or clever enough to justify their volume. I just gave the example of Judge James, who just immediately bangs the gavel and says guilty. I feel like now I am able in that moment to stop and think, I know that I feel this is distasteful. I... I'm feeling hatred towards that person. I wish they weren't in the party. I wish that everyone was correctly giving attention to the person who is the funniest and the most clever, not that charlatan. And really, I'd like that to be me. And I want them all to turn to me and realise they were stupid for paying attention to the person with no talent. And I can stand there and think, oh, gosh, now I understand why I'm having that feeling. Now I can just walk into the party and talk to whoever and it doesn't really matter and I'm not concerned with the person shouting their no talent on the other side of the room. I simply don't need to indulge their attention-seeking, but I definitely don't need to judge them and I certainly don't need to draw the attention to myself or to make everyone know that I think they're bad because my feeling of that is totally irrelevant to this party. And subjective. And subjective. Because, I mean, if someone is standing there in the corner entertaining people and there are people being entertained, my guess would be, previously, you would have judged all of them as well. What, for being so stupid to be entertained by such lack of talent? Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I've already written off most of the party and I'm basically thinking, I'm at the wrong party. No one here is good enough for superior me. Where is the party where people live up to my high standards? I don't know where it is. This is a constant source of frustration. Should I just carry on living my frustrating life? May as well commit suicide. Instead of that... Sadly, you didn't. I mean, luckily you didn't. Instead of that... I can now be in that party and just think, 
cool. Who shall I talk to? Because it doesn't matter. And who are you attracted to then? Drawn to is better. Okay, so there might be sort of like the quite handsome person who's not paying me any attention, but is also not seeking attention. They're sort of a little bit withdrawn, and it's and it's a challenge, a sort of hunter gatherer challenge to see if I can gather some attention from them. Hunter stalker, but okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's that person. Then. That's, I mean, that really is the one that comes to mind immediately. And to be honest, I'm clutching at straws trying to find another one off the top of my head. There probably is another archetype, but that one is so clear. And if there's another one, it's so not clear right now. Okay. I think you probably like the quietly entertaining people as well. What's that? Describe that person and I'll see if I like them. Well, it's the opposite of the person that you're judging heavily, but they're still entertaining and they're still holding a crowd, as it were. Oh, do you mean like someone who's sort of like in the corner? Not not many people are paying attention to them, but there's maybe two of them. And those two people are completely transfixed. And I want a piece of that. Yeah, that's the one. Absolutely. You go and join them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's good that you don't try and compete with old, let's call him or her. James. Well, no, I was going to say James 2, but we've already used... No, it can't be James 2, it'd be James like 7 or 9 yeah. or 12. But No, what I mean is James Hall 2. So not James 2, James uh, Hall, so me, the, James me, is, the reflection. James is shadow self. Yes, yes. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, you interrupted in at number three. Rationalisation. Ah, rationalisation. This is a more tricky one. Um, but I think uh, rationalisation... The best way that I can describe that is <clears throat> uh, think about you love this one. You'll love this one. The way that the German people got on board with Hitler and his d- disgust for so many different types of people, but obviously predominantly the Jewish people, they rationalized. They are taking our jobs. They are uh, stealing. They're dirty. They um, are clandestine. They do things that they shouldn't. They're not German. They're not a part of our society. Rather than admitting, I'm feeling hatred and anger and disgust towards these people. And this isn't this isn't right. You know, they rationalize their disgust and their fear and their contempt. I think that's that's about as much as I would understand it. Rationalization. Perfect example. Mm. And when they rationalize it to the extent that the Jews are an existential threat suddenly countless ordinary people are complicit with the mass murder of all those Jewish people because to not murder them means to just allow an existential threat that you've rationalised to kill you, kill or your be family. killed. Yeah, kill or be killed. Exactly. And I think in a more simple, like a more personal level, we might... Uh, so, so we're not getting into relationships we're not making friends we're not seeing people as we should we'd say things like oh but i'm so tired all the time or oh no i i really don't want to do that at the moment um oh you know it's, it's much easier if this this week i i stay in or oh i've always wanted to watch that on the television because perhaps we're actually scared of making connections with other people or we think we'll be rejected or or we think that we're not good enough to meet with other people and socialise. And so we say simple things to ourselves that mean we don't have to go through with that thing that would enable us to get something that we really want. 
rationalization. In at number two. Splitting. Um, the, 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 so there's, there's different uses of this word in psychoanalysis. Um, I don't know which one this specifically refers to, but it's a defense mechanism. So splitting is, I think, pushing things into either good or bad. It's um, polarizing things. Yeah, it says here, <laughs> keeping contradictory attitudes or feelings in separate compartments of awareness, uh, which does make sense. You just said um, black or white thinking, didn't you? Yeah, concrete, black and white, keeping things. Because um, obviously we can also we use the word splitting for the way that a child might play a parent off against each other, you know, the good parent and the bad parent and... Um, asking the same question of both parents individually so that they get the answer they want. Um, but... Uh-huh, okay, uh-huh. But I think, to be honest, like different psychotherapists over the years use use different meaning of this. In introducing Melanie Klein, uh, they talk about splitting the ego in relation to the process of a person dividing their own self. Uh, some aspect of the self is separated and obliterated, as if it were not part of the personality at all. Other people would deny all knowledge of aggression in themselves, or as in those criminals mentioned in previous chapter, that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Guilt, for example, can be separated off and abolished from their personalities. Splitting. That was the uh, Robert Hinshelwood, Susan Robinson and Oscar Zarate book. Very good. I like it. Lovely pictures. In at number one. Yeah, that's what I was waiting for. <laughs> Manic defences. Is that, is that an obvious one? Ways of denying feelings of depression. Ah, yes. Yeah, so, so manic defences might be... It's like it's, it's, so. If you look behaviorally at how someone, if you make it really simple, uh, you're feeling very low, so you keep busy, you do lots of things to not allow those thoughts in. People might not. oh, perfect example in a film that I <laughs> judged as not funny enough called Burn After Reading. There was one uh, Brad scene Pitt. and George Clooney. Love them so, both. There was one scene. So let's let's say the film is ninety minutes long. For 89 of those minutes, I did not laugh. And for one minute, I screamed with laughter. And I think this was in the cinema and no one else laughed anywhere near as much as I did at this one visual joke. Okay. But I think it's a perfect manic defence. George Clooney has just brutally murdered someone and chucked them in a wardrobe or something like that. And it cuts to George Clooney in the kitchen preparing dinner and he's cutting carrots and there's a pile of about 400 carrots. <laughs> and there's sort of like... I don't know, four of them who are going to eat that night. Yes. And I screamed with laughter at this visual gag of he's trying to deny the fact that he's murdered someone by cutting two, by just, if he just keeps on cutting carrots, I'm, just, I'm explaining the joke here. Yeah, Everyone loves it when that. I explain a joke. Um, uh, he, he's, he cannot cope with the fact that he's just murdered someone. So if he just keeps cutting carrots, that'll keep his mind safely off the fact that there's a corpse in the wardrobe. And he's, 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 he can easily rationalise the fact that 200 carrots are perfectly appropriate for four people at dinner. And um, yes, I screamed with laughter at that visual exaggerated depiction of a sort of manic defence.
Hmm. Yeah, that's actually very, very close to um, to Melanie Klein's description of it. Now, here's a dilemma. Yes. I was just about to say we... I said at the start of the episode, mm-hmm. welcome on board the dream boat. We're going to be looking at dreams. Yeah, you did. I did not anticipate that we would spend an hour talking about defences. So I'm going to see how you're feeling because I'm perfectly ready to launch into dreams. But not if after five minutes you decide you've had enough and you're hungry and you're tired and you need to end the episode. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I suppose it all just depends on how much of your 35 minutes of blabbering Uh, you're going to keep in and if the 35 minutes of blabbering that you take out from the kind of continuation flow is put in at the end and the episode is still a good length for our listener you know what are you going to decide to do i can't tell right now perfectly happy to talk a little bit about dreams but i feel that we really do need to dig deep and explore dreams and the unconscious and and have a look at that rather than just kind of pay it a little lip service and say oh yeah and by the way dreams can give you a pretty good look into what's going on in your unconscious what did you do last night but do remember of course not everything is literal in your dreams you can't just analyze it like that okay let's do dreams next time uh-huh. but we could also talk about the defenses that we had just spoken about could yes. we? we could talk more yes. about defenses in the modern world we could talk about how defense mechanisms are commonplace the rationalization example that you gave of world war ii is a historical example so anyone listening now Uh the thing that i love to bring up Uh political polarization especially when we've been talking about blame people blaming the other group so um all people on the right hand side of the spectrum blaming people on the left and all people on the left blaming people on the right as if the only good or bad is whether you are correctly left or correctly right depending on your point of view on the political spectrum that's a form of rationalization because both sides of the political spectrum have valid contributions to make to the general discussion any society has about how to organise themselves. Mm -hmm. And for one side to think that they are right and the other side is wrong is as much of a rationalisation, by which I mean it's irrational, as saying, I, the Nazi, must defeat the The enemy, the Jew, or the the communist. Yeah, they're all in it together, aren't they? The Jews and the commies. Um, Because, well... They are. They are. You don't understand. I understand. You don't understand. They're all in it together, Jack. But usually communism is quite anti-Semitic because Jews are considered to be Ah. money-making, crooked-nosed, evil, satanic, greedy, capitalist whores. Cloven-hooved whores. Yeah. Yes. Um, So that's an easy way of demonising them Uh as Uh a communist. But that is what the Illuminati would want you to believe. (laughs) Now, you may laugh, James, you may laugh. There are theories out there that actually uh, this modern left-wing movement, this socialist, this multiculturalism that many Western societies find is developing in their countries is actually a kind of a Zionist conspiracy that has been brought about to dilute all other people of the earth most predominantly in Europe, but dilute them down 
so they no longer have national identity. So there is no longer the white British man. There is no longer the white Frenchman. And that the uh, powerful Zionist banking families have brought this about by this sort of modern left-wing pseudo-communist um, ideology. Yeah, but why? Why? So that they can control everyone, James. They can take away our identity. They can dilute yeah. our masculinity. They've done that, but and then what? What do they? Will they control us? What do they do? What they, do they make money to... from us. That's it. Okay. You know, to be honest, in my opinion, it's pretty much a load of nonsense. But there is this interesting. Um, I suppose what I'm getting at, in essence, is the way that I'm noticing certain, and it isn't. It isn't just my sort of more extreme right wing friends who have you know strong beliefs in what we would mostly consider a conspiracy theories. It isn't just that group. Like I think coming into the common psyche and a lot of different uh, people is this way that they have to use these very extreme conspiratorial ideas to be able to rationalise why the world is so shit, in their opinion. Yeah. It's so dark, it's so nasty, it's so torn up, it's so not a place that they belong. Um and I think that is a way of rationalising as well the 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 um, more extreme thinking on on both sides. And I know you said like the left wing and the right wing, but you know Labour and Tories, you know the middle of the road really. If I can try and illustrate my own life journey in maybe ten words, <laughs> I can't imagine that is possible for you, James. But uh, okay, I'm counting. <laughs> you can take a minute, okay? I certainly was very left-wing as a teenager and in that process I looked at all the th Judge James was judging everything and I can assure you that that gavel was coming down on the guilty party at a rate that even I could barely keep up with and the only way I could rationalise this was by assuming that in the James Hall left-wing utopia of the future all these problems would be solved because everyone would be correct like me and for as long as everyone is incorrect and Judge James bangs the gavel and declares that they are guilty the world will continue to be full of problems and that went on for a long time and I really did truly believe that it was objective truth that left-wing ideas were correct and right-wing ideas were absolutely wrong and that therefore there was a sense of being on a side and fighting an enemy and that could have got more and more extreme and but one of the things that has come out of studying the ideas in psychoanalysis for me and I, I, I talk about studying the ideas in psychoanalysis simply because <laughs> It says ideas in psychoanalysis at the top of all of these books that <laughs> I started with. But I'm now reading Jung. I'm now branching out in all directions because my interest is in how Jungian ideas, as an example, translate along the lines of Carl Rogers' thinking into the wider world. So mm -hmm, we'll mm -hmm. come back to Carl Rogers in the future because I'm Carl Rogers. now obsessed with him. Uncle Carl. But... Just to summarise, just so you know, you, you you I counted to about 60, 80, 80 words, maybe, yeah, about eighty words, and, and I still don't know what the, the 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 story of your life is in ten words. 
Oh, only in relation to what you just said. So I'm saying that when I was young, I was left wing. I thought that was correct. Uh-huh. And that I had to fight the enemy of the right wing who were all incorrect. Judge James banging the gavel. Perfect. Right. What's that thing you often say to me? I do like it. If you're, if you're not left wing when you're young, you're heartless. And if you're not more right wing when you're older, you're brainless or something like that. I do like that. Under 30 and right wing, no heart. Over 30 and left wing, no brains. But I don't agree with that at all. Uh, I think I do. <laughs> and uh, as much as... as um, Hold I on, are you, I feel like you're doing a closing speech. No, 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 I'm okay. not. I'm enjoying this, James. Okay, good. I mean, that 35 minutes of listening to Waffle got me in the mood for a real conversation. Okay, good. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, I really like that. And I think it's it's true to some extent that... I don't think it's true at all. But you, sorry, I'm not trying to interrupt you. I just want it known. You're not, no, that you're I don't not think trying to interrupt me. I am interrupting you. Are interrupting you. Me. I don't think it's true at all. But carry on. I think to some extent it is true that if you are firmly right-wing when you were younger, then there is something lacking in your emotional capacity to be compassionate towards other. And if you do not see, as you get older, that there are strong uh, protective ideas for your nationality, which I think is a good thing, and for the independence of your country, and for um, the right for individuals to succeed and make what they will of their life, in in right-wing thinking, then you are brainless. If you think there's nothing good in that. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. But I think that in the... Because obviously it was part of a script, wasn't it? When a German... When German left-wing students... Um, what do they do? They kidnap a businessman. Oh, uh, that's yeah. what he says to them. Yeah. I've not seen the film, but you've said it to me so many times and I've thought about it. Um, but I think it's... Ro- I think it, it, there's a lot of truth in that. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Not it's right. There's a lot of truth in it. For the listener, if they're thinking, oh, yeah, that film, what is it, 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 it? shall I put them out of their misery? Yes. The Educators. The Educators. It's a German film. Uh Das Educator. (laughs) Well, it's The Educators with a K, if you're looking. Das Educator. Furiously scribbling on the IMDb to try and find it. I see what you mean. Mm -hmm, Good. Mm -hmm. I still think that the exact words you just used then were a little bit extreme, And so what I take from psychoanalysis is that the individual takes their own responsibility for the process of not repressing in adulthood. So the the problematic conversation that we've had today about the child who represses and the adult who also represses. And I was trying to say that the child has to repress, but the adult doesn't have to repress. The adult does repress, as you were saying, and I'm sure I repress ideas and you repress ideas. But the point of the point from a psychoanalytic perspective is that obviously the child represses ideas. Duh. Just... <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I'm quoting Melanie Klein there or maybe Jacques Lacan. One Hang of them on, wait, said that. Look, look. <laughs> yeah, next he put two swings side by side and duh, he couldn't get it. So probably that's what she said. Whoa. Um, so obviously the child has to repress. Obviously. But the adults just keep repressing and I'm just going to, for it to be lazy and to be hypocritical, I'm going to say that's because they are lazy. 
Whereas the quote unquote enlightened adult yes, or okay. to be less lofty and more Carl Rogers, the person who has gone through the process of becoming who they are rather than accepting reluctantly who is, or who is on, who's in the process, who is because yeah. it never ends, James. Correct. That person no longer represses everything in that childlike state of yeah, yeah. categorising good and bad. I see time. what you're saying now. So that's, what you were saying is... That's, that's what I was trying to say earlier. Fuck. So now would you uh, like to respond to that? God. We learn to repress in very early childhood. Yes. Our brain develops the mechanisms by which we repress. And I think I was going to start uh, describing how I think... I, th- I remember I used to go, and I think lots of kids did shit like this. I remember I used to go under the sofa in the back room when I'd done something bad and say, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, until I was comfortable enough. And I'm sure I shed a tear. And, you know, I'm sure I was quite shaken by whatever these things were that I'd done. And, and, and I would have to rationalise somehow. But my mum loves me, you know. And then I remember, God, this is a good one. I remember that each time I went to bed at night, my mum and dad used to say, and I feel very, like, you know, lucky to have had this. I used to say, night, night, I love you, God bless. My dad was sort of religious, my mum wasn't, and my mum and dad would say, night, night, love you, God bless. And when we were really little, we'd go up, we'd be carried upstairs if we were tired by my dad. And I'd say, night, night, love you, God bless. And he'd say, and I'd say it again, and I'd say it again until I was certain that they did love me. And that, you know, and, and if they didn't say it one night, because I'd definitely been naughty and I'd been caught being naughty, and I was standing at the top of the stairs shouting, night, night, I love you, God bless. And they said nothing, because they were fucking angry with me for whatever it was that I'd done. I'd be devastated. It would be the evidence of all of the wrongs I'd done and all the bads I'd done. And I'd go to bed going, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. And, I, and, and that is the repression, isn't it? Because perhaps... You know, perhaps there was a whole bunch of other emotions to it, like when you were questioning me earlier, fear, anger, sadness, excitement, you know, interest, intrigue, all these different things. And actually, it was diluted down to I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. And I have to find some kind of, usually, definitely kids find a sort of a repetitive, almost like a internal mantra to make themselves feel better. Or, or then they go to sleep and they dream something and it, processes it and they forget it in the morning you know in the morning they wake up and they've forgotten but it's still there somewhere but you know i don't relate to any of this no i don't know that how could i know that okay well i don't relate to any of this and you you've just illustrated that example as if it is a universal fact for all children no 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 well that's how i perceived it okay thank you and it is absolutely not the case for me. My parents loved me because I was a wonderful divine child and I was fantastic and... No, no, wait, don't, don't say that flippantly because that doesn't, that doesn't okay. help. You I... believed that and nothing you did, okay, let's... you ever noticed, caused them any anger, stress, sadness. Is that what you're saying? I don't want to make this flippant. I want to... Well, you did. Well... Uh, okay so I didn't have I didn't have the it's not like I had the mantra as a child I'm wonderful divine the perfect only child the things that I come out with now I find that hard to believe but I never saw evidence of anything other than I was a wonderful creative child my parents were delighted with me and I was set to do great things 
Okay, so so you just grew up. I'm sorry, I, 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 I don't believe that. I don't I, believe that. I, like I, your repression is like working overtime. I never said I'm bad to myself. I never felt like, like there were. I mean, I knew sometimes. I knew my parents had values and I knew that sometimes I'd done something and I'd think, oh, whoopsie, I got carried away, but not do that again. But there was certainly a feeling of, oh, it's all right, I'm me, I've got away with this. There was never a case of me running into the corner of shame and thinking I'm bad. I don't remember ever having that feeling or that thought or whatever you you can call it it's so abstract to me you don't remember it <laughs> um this is a plea to james's three jungian gods <laughs> please please take him on for therapy <laughs> please if you're listening if you're out there and you know who you are please take him on for therapy I just I don't remember at all the idea the idea of thinking oh, I'm bad. I felt especially as a sort of fourteen year old. I don't know. It wasn't so much I'm not good enough. It's more like I see evidence in the world of not living up to of myself, not living up to my potential, and things aren't going my way. Things that I want to happen are not happening. I don't have the life I want, and that initially prompted quite a low I remember there was one time I came home from school and whereas usually I'd be chomping at the bit to read the magazine I subscribed to and open some cake and email my aunt and listen to some kind of like pop hits local radio type stuff in my room that would get me excited and, and make one of my magazines and all that sort of stuff normally I'd be chomping at the bit to do that after school and I would specifically remember a time when I just put my head in my hands on my bed and not using, not voicing these words, but I'm going to voice the words to make this simple, thinking, I don't believe anything is worthwhile doing this evening. Me just putting my hand, head in my hands in despair is the only thing that seems worthy right now. And what had happened? I don't know specifically what had happened that day, but I know that in that time examples of things were it was when I was coming to terms with the fact that I didn't have enough friends because all the people who had tried to make friends with me I had rejected them because I didn't think they were good enough and all the people that I wanted to make friends with had no reason to even know that I wanted to make friends with them let alone suddenly divine the idea that they should be friends with me out of absolutely nothing I was coming to the realization that because I had moved from school to school to school to school over a period of three years or so and that because I had done that I had developed a core belief if that's what you'd call it that school was temporary friendship was futile because the next people would be long along on the conveyor belt soon enough yeah what's the point in making friends when you move to another school in two months time all things are impermanent and so when I was then at one school for many years several years into that the penny dropped and I thought 
I've now been at this school for let's say one, two, three, four, let's say four or five years, and the penny suddenly dropped that lots of people had tried to make friends with me and I had rejected them all. And I had thought that they weren't good enough for me, and I thought that other people were better than them and they were worthy of being my friends and they and and it hadn't worked out and I hadn't managed to make friends with them. And somehow I didn't really voice this, but in some abstract way, I probably knew a little bit that that was my responsibility, my fault that it hadn't happened. I hadn't lived up to my own expectations. My strategy hadn't worked or whatever I would have thought. And I thought in that moment, I thought I now in the position where I don't know how to make friends. I don't know what to do. I'm not, I don't have friends and I'm not going to have friends anytime soon. And I don't think my life will amount to anything until finally I can get out of this hell by growing up, being an adult and starting on a clean sheet. And then the thing that really hit me like a cricket bat in the face, there's a nice painful public school analogy. Um, Probably on the bottom. Yeah. (laughs) Was when I did grow up, leave home, opened up the pristine, perfect, crisp white sheets of the new book of my prosperity. And I found that nothing had changed. Life was just this continuum. There wasn't a fresh start at the age of 18 when I was living alone for the f- or living independently for the first time. Um, I was as unable to make friends as in the context where I'd rejected everybody. Suddenly, I was given supposedly the fresh opportunity. All new people all coming together at Kingston University, where I did my art foundation year. Um, First thing I noticed was lots of them came in a pre-made group, a clique. They all knew each other. Cunts. Second thing I noticed was that the the ones like me, the Lone Rangers, somehow they had the knowledge of how to make friends that I didn't have. And all I could do was just stand there and watch it happen and think, well, that's just passed me by. What was that first day at university like? Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't call it the first day. I'd call it maybe the first month gradually you do have a nice patience somehow from probably from learning to spend time on your own at such a young age but yeah if that if I had that feeling that would hit me on the first night and uh, by the end of that night I'd probably been calling my parents to bring me home or something oh no 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 for me it's it would all it would take me probably about a month it would be a slow kind of I would be in total denial I'd, I'd so in other words I would see two people who were complete strangers like maybe one of them had come from America, one of them had come from Scotland. They're both lone wolves at Kingston University doing their art foundation year. And I see them and they just make friends and they go off to a bar and have a drink together. And I think, whoa, 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 whoa. Someone stop the world. We cannot continue until I am up to speed with what is going on here because I don't know how that just happened. That makes no sense to me. These two people have just done alchemy and now there is gold. How do I do that? What do I do? Do I, do I rub the back of my hand? Do I, do I put a toad on my chest with some mustard? Is there some sort of superstition that makes friendship happen? Wait, you didn't think that. What did you think? Well, I didn't think those words. I, I thought... Other people can make friends effortlessly. I can't. 
the only thing I know is to make people laugh. I really hope I can make people laugh in my in the weeks to come so that so they'll like me. So they'll like me and I won't be lonely for the whole year. And did you? Yes. I mean, I, on the whole, I, I've spent most of my 20s looking back on that year as mostly unsuccessful. But that's retrospective harsh criticism because if I try and be a bit more, a bit more neutral looking back, uh-huh, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. The, the, some of the memories that stand out the most were times when I really did connect with people and managed to do that. So I'm painting a picture of myself as if I was a total alien who just didn't understand humans at all. But now let me contrast that with a few, just very briefly, a few highlights. One (laughs) was there was a girl there who was making a short film and um, I happened to be, the, the, the art school is next to a river. Not the Thames, which runs through Kingston, but there's a tiny, a bit like the Wandle, there's a tiny river that feeds into the Thames in Kingston and the art school is right on the water's edge. And um, she was making a video where she was, she had this toy car that she'd got from Poundland and she was driving it into the river and filming it. And we were both astonished that this car that cost one pound kept driving into the water and would keep working, keep working. It was an electric car and somehow it was waterproof. Um... But anyway, she she was just doing this and I happened to be nearby. And she, as far as I was concerned as my harsh self-critic, she had every reason to ignore me, but she didn't. She called me over and she told me what she was doing and she basically invited me to help her. And we laughed and we had fun doing it. And I went away from that thinking, I can just effortlessly be with other people and they like me. They don't assume that I'm to be dismissed. And there were there were other incidents like that. Um, there, and at the end of the year, there was a big sort of like end of year gathering in a pub next to the art college. And there were four of us at that gathering who didn't really feel like we totally fitted in with everything and everyone throughout the year. And yet we felt a connection with each other. And so the four of us went to another pub around the corner and had one of the most for me that's just one of the best memories of my life a few hours in that pub it was a real affirmation that I could it was the first time being independent not being not being forced into school life this was my life that I'd chosen and it was the first time in that life that I realized I have just connected with these people we have chosen to be here in this pub as opposed to being in the thing that we had to go to we have decided we've rejected that and done the thing that we have purposefully decided to do together because we feel some kind of connection and we had a nice time and we were all like I didn't feel like I was tagging along because if you are tagging along and the other three really wish that you weren't there everyone knows that and I didn't feel that at all and that was the first time that something really meaningful socially happened to me and I thought oh I I'm not that alien who needs a manual to work out how to interact with other human beings I can do it it's just I felt like the pieces had all fallen into place that time whereas normally when you have to just go out there in the world and make things happen that's when I'm completely clueless still often to this day 
So p- potentially, you know, going through your um, your teenage years, you were you were in denial. So I think going back to our defense mechanism, I think repression and denial are probably synonymous. Um, no, there's another word for it, but I can't remember. So synonymous will do. They're, they're very similar things, you know, being in denial of something, being not allowing something to come into your conscious mind that really you do know, like somehow keeping it at, by, at bay, that during your teenage years, you probably were aware that you weren't making friends. You were aware that, and at a certain point, you brought that into consciousness and this was like the head in hands moment that you described before. And then you had to deal with it. And although you didn't know how, you eventually learned. And in retrospect, I still categorised that year as part of my unsuccessful period of at least four years. Wait, when did you categorise it like that? Throughout my 20s. Until when? Until quite recently. So until we started doing this podcast and particularly when I went to Montpellier. So I wonder whether that was rationalising what was rationalising that was unsuccessful so you'd have to spell this out to the idiot well that you rather than i don't know manage the rather than manage the emotions of some of the sadness of it manage the emotions of some of the loneliness of it um you just wrote it off as unsuccessful oh yes saw something in yourself like uh, even you know, rather this, you know, using this nonsense, divine, blah blah blah, rather than saying, actually, I worked really hard then to learn how to socialise. Potentially because I'm sorry, but like, you know, my parents failed to give me something that a lot of other people have. Not everyone, but a lot of other people in my situation, in my sort of, with my kind of social background, had you know, stability, uh, role modelling of socialising. Rather than bringing that into consciousness, saying, actually, this wasn't entirely my responsibility and it wasn't entirely my fault, I, you, you, instead you rationalise it, you failed. Oh, yes, yeah, so absolutely black and white. I pretty much wrote off four years of my life as if the whole thing was a catastrophe. And, and it's, it's quite timely to talk about this now because about two weeks ago I went back to Kingston and walked around the art school and... I have been back to Kingston before last week, but in previous times when I've gone through Kingston, there's been a distinct feeling of unease, probably even things like sort of like upset stomach, if it was exaggerated, things like that. Yeah, I completely understand. Um, Like, I'm back in Kingston. This is part of my failed past. Get me out of here. Yeah. I've moved on from this now. This, this, this... You know, if I could rewrite my life, this chapter would never have existed. What am I doing back in Kingston? Get me out of here. Whereas the other day I was walking around Kingston thinking there are not as many, but there is a significant number of happy memories of living in Kingston. Things that were exciting, things that were new, things that were fun, things that made me laugh, things that challenged me, things that were all good. Even if that was only 30% of the time, but more realistically, it was probably 40% of the time. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the time was confusing, frustrating, chaos, basically. Um, that's still a lot of good memories of Kingston that yeah, I have. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I obviously want to say to you now, what? So you, as a, a teenager, early 20s, were only genuinely happy around 40% of the time. How unusual. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I would want to say, yeah, okay, you know, screw you, you had 40%. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I think when you, do, like, w- when we're talking about defence, like, not to stop you in, in full flow, these are the conversations I want to have on this podcast, but not and not to stop you in full flow, but to stop you in full flow. When we're talking about defence mechanisms for our listener, and we came up with uh, from our ideas in psychoanalysis the top five, there's there's so many things that we do that you probably can't categorise that stop us from feeling things that we don't like feeling and thinking things that are scary to us or abhorrent to us or or just so uncomfortable that we don't keep them in our mind. And what we do, it, what we do is behavioural, what we do is psychological, um, and what we do is also uh, automatic. Um, and like you said, potentially was learnt in childhood, but not always. The way that we manage this without processing it, the way we manage emotion without processing emotion, the way we manage ideas and misconceptions and beliefs and experience without processing it, it pretty much are, are defences. We use defences to defend the self, the idea of self, the idea of potentially, you know, a, a, the, the fragile, potentially pathetic or not not capable or incompetent or lazy or stupid or useless person we think we are. The way we defend ourselves from all of those thoughts is, is you know, is multitude, is, um, is, a, is plethora of things. And in psychoanalysis, they call them defence mechanisms. And um, we looked at the top five from that book. But actually, there's, there's probably hundreds of different ways we can do this. So um, I don't know, you know, people being aggressive could be an actual defence mechanism, not allowing other people to criticise them. People being passive aggressive would be another way of doing it. And often when you're having an argument with someone and they, they will literally say, stop being so defensive. You know, it's even got into our common language. Stop being so defensive when actually you could just be angry with them you could just be furious with them you could just not want to engage with that person in the moment but defenses are all of us use them all of the time sarcasm is a really good defense um you know perhaps against criticism or against the idea that someone else maybe oh, you feel they're better one. than you you know i don't, don't want to just let that one be lost sarcasm as a defense against criticism would you like that do you yes yeah uh, it's sort of sarcasm was almost, in my opinion, um, it's sort of it's, it's like an illness of the British public. It's, <laughs> it's something that's got so into how we interact and communicate with each other um, that it I, I think for a long time, potentially, it, you know, sarcasm and irony and these kind of things were used because they were funny. And then it became a part of our language and then it's just there and now people use it to criticize others in a kind of a not really covert in a covert overt way you know oh i'm just joking you're not you're, <laughs> you're criticizing that person uh oh you're really good at that saying you're pathetic you can't do that not oh you're on a pathway to learning how to be good at that oh you're really good at that um you know whatever it is um and 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 i think those kind of things 
in psychoanalysis would be seen and, and obviously it's in, it's all about individual psychoanalysis really would be seen well, as a way of I, I see it as that you know in terms of the interpretation of behavior yeah but this is why you have really got me bouncing with the Carl Rogers book that you gave me oh yeah so but I don't know in fact I was going to ask you this um essentially to try and just for the sake of me limiting the words I use rather than giving context to the question why did you give me flow and why did you give me on becoming a person I gave you flow because you from my perspective looking at you I thought you could enjoy life more and enjoy you know you know lots lots of simple things uh more and i thought that you could use it to motivate yourself to paint uh, and enjoy the process as much as the product um that's why i gave you flow um and also i thought i you know and on another level i thought it was a really cool book and i think you'd like the idea that i'd read that book and you might want to talk to me about the ideas in that book um and carl rogers was the first book I read on becoming a person. That's what it's called, isn't it? Uh, the first book I read at university that made me realise that the process that I was on individually and personally in my life was valid and it was normal and it was healthy and that we should all be doing it. Not that I was weird for trying to be a better person and to trying to develop my life and trying to become everything that I could be. Um, and it taught me so much about interactions with other people and it taught me not to judge in a way that I hadn't been able to before and that's not to say I don't judge now I do but I'm aware of it and it was so beautifully written I wanted you to read those words well that's exactly what I was trying to get at with the party example judge James arriving at the party judging the person with the volume and the lack of talent to justify the volume, as I saw it as Judge James. And maybe it's only as recent as the last two weeks when I've been reading that book, but I'm now fantasising about the idea of myself going to the party and not judging, not being Judge James. Maybe two weeks ago I was still Judge James, and maybe it is entirely down to Carl Rogers that I'm sat here pretending that I don't need to judge anymore. <laughs> But I think, so his core concept is unconditional positive regard. And I'll, I'll never forget that. I will never forget that. And I know that I can be cruel and I can be unkind and I can be judgmental. And I'm not going to hate myself for that. But I also know that there is a, like a technique, a kind of a, a, a practice to it, that you catch yourself and you stop and you think, what's this person been through? How would I react in their situation? I and you can get very you can get criticised for this. You can get criticised for not being able to find someone to blame, not being able to point the finger. But Carl Rogers taught me that actually. So if you think about someone that's abused their child, you have to ask yourself, not to say that they shouldn't be held responsible for it, but you have to ask yourself, what did they go through? with their parents and in their life and the people that they come into contact with. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what did their parents go through? 
the parents' parents. And you've got to trace that trauma back in a way. You're unable to understand someone's behaviour that is completely unacceptable to you. Um, and then we talked about like much more simple examples, like you know the the precocious twat telling you to um, reel your neck in because you're, you know, probably potentially you were annoying half the people there, and perhaps you were inspiring half the people there who were scared and frightened and weren't able to speak up, and perhaps you know some of the people there were like, yeah, no, that's a good one, James. I like that. I mean, I wouldn't say it myself. <laughs> you know, perhaps the teachers loved and hated you and. And, you know, you learn from the comment that actually was a criticism. So, you know, but but Carl Rogers, to get back on track, is potentially one of the biggest influences I had as a mental health nurse. And I think if you learn the concept of unconditional positive regard, your ability to help people is limitless. My instant we have a cynical listener reflex kicks in, which is not justified. I have no reason to believe that the listener is cynical, but I do until, and I haven't been, I haven't either, I haven't got rid of this feeling or had it disproven or anything like that. My knee jerk reaction is to picture a listener thinking unconditional, what hippie absolute fudge did he just come out with there? I need to switch this off and start listening to something sensible. And I think that along with the idea that people don't want to go into their unconscious to find things that they repress. What if you repress? Why do you then go into that forest of terrible things? Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that psychoanalysis is not a science and therefore it can be dismissed as a load of charlatans just making stuff up, and probably many other reasons are what are increase. All of these reasons are increasingly what makes me interested in talking about these subjects in more detail hypothetically if we have that cynical listener mm-hmm. they might at, le- at the very least think oh there's more to it than i dismissed if we don't have a c- cynical listener it's a complete figment of my imagination then we are talking about the interesting meat of the subject for their teeth to sink into <laughs> okay but basically there's way more to there's a there's a whole complexity to Carl Rogers that I would like to go into in detail because that book that you gave the reason I asked you why did you give me flow why did you give me the Carl Rogers book is because you've given me lots of books and I've read them all and but those two examples are unlike anyone ever giving me a book ever before flow you gave me a book exactly when I needed to have someone explain to me what I was desperately trying to put into words from my observations of life in Paris. And that was the book that just said, James, stop agonising over it. Here is a simple explanation. Okay. Oh, the walks. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. And then the Carl Rogers book makes sense of all of these screaming voices in my head along the lines of everyone should integrate and self-actualize and it's insane that a hundred years or more after Freud and Jung adults are still behaving like that four-year-old repressing ideas that are either black or white good or bad why are these idiots not paying attention to the ideas that are now a hundred years old and counting I need to do something about this um what else 
the idea of oh but for the, for any of this to be valid it needs to be scientifically proven uh because that's how rational enlightened modern humans get at truth we can't be wallowing in all this superstition uh, and many more conflicting thoughts about the idea of psychoanalysis and a uh, sort of interpretation of contemporary society and a lot of that is all brought together in that Carl Rogers book. I can give you a, a, a real life example um, and I'll do my very best to keep it completely anonymous um, of catching myself being quite authoritarian and parental and judgmental all in one with one of my patients who is very low weight, um, anorexic, um, and the first contact I had with her was a phone call to tell her that she must come in to be weighed because she hadn't been seen for six months because there'd been no one in my role uh, in the borough that I was working in. And I called her and I said, you, you have to come in to be weighed. And she was obviously disturbed by this. You have to come in to be weighed. And she, she was upset and I didn't really understand why. And in my head, I thought it was ridiculous. And I thought I was being manipulated that she would, you know, crocodile tears and, and, and she, she wasn't going to come in. And I put the phone down and I thought about it and I realized that I'd put across so many of my own ideals and ideas of what she should do and she must do. And I took 15 minutes and I called back. And I said, I'm really sorry. I obviously upset you there. I didn't really consider how that phone call might have made you feel or how, how I worded things and I apologized. And she started talking and we spoke for about half an hour or, or quite an extended period of time. And I said, I'd really like it if you could come in and we could talk about weighing because as a service we're really worried about you and we want to know that you're okay um and when i took away the judgment that she had avoided weighing and took away the judgment that she you know the the demand that she must do this thing for us the authority who know what we're talking about because we're clinicians and she's gonna die uh, it completely changed the dynamic and it completely changed the brand new relationship and on the last day that I worked with her and I worked with her for seven years at least. That was what she remembered. She remembered me calling up and apologising and, and, and thinking about how she felt and who she was and not what I wanted. Um, and for someone who is that low weight and who someone who is that unwell, because I dealt with probably the sickest people in, in, in South London at least. Whoops. She... she, she she could have died during that time, but she held on to whatever it was that kept her alive, partially because of that relationship she had with, of trust and of respect and of unconditional positive regard. And I never changed after realising what I'd done, almost ruining the therapeutic relationship within the first 30 seconds. I never went back on that. Um, and she remembered it in the last day and it, that was in a positive way, like devastating to me. And that made me understand. And I got that idea, that concept of stop judging 
uh, from yeah from him from Carl Rogers. But the reason Carl Rogers came up, it's easier to say this in French because in English you say the amount of time and then ago, so like twenty minutes ago. But in English, if you can't remember the amount of time. The, in French, it's easier to say the reason this came up ago. I don't know. Sometime. It's much easier to say it that way round in French. In English, to say the reason this came up. I don't know. Ago, is much more clunky. So I'll, I'll use the French organizational structure of the sentence. The reason this came up ago. I don't know. Sometime, is because. Carl Rogers talks about the wider implications outside of the therapy room. So everything we've talked about in this episode, the person who is sarcastic because they fear criticism, Judge James walking into the party, all of these sorts of things. The process of bringing that from the unconscious into consciousness, not being the child who just thinks I'm bad, is an adult process that usually happens one-on-one in psychoanalysis except I'm asking now isn't that crazy why would you expect only a handful of people with the time and the money and the will to go into psychoanalysis to be the only ones who work through these things should everyone else just keep repressing and keep living life like a four-year-old because they're not in analysis. Carl Rogers doesn't think so, and I don't think so. And if the listener has an answer to that question... Well, I mean, Carl Rogers has plenty of answers, and that's what I want to get to after the little mini-series on the unconscious. But obviously, just to make sure that we don't do anything spontaneous, next week we'll have to tick off dreams from my important James Hall list. Oh, my God. Yeah, we we didn't even get to dreams on your important James Hall list today. I've even got... I drew a picture of... No, 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 no. Let's come back to that next week. Okay. Let's come back to that next week. But he has drawn a picture, people. Can I say? No. Okay, but the, okay, we'll come to this next week. There's a very... The, no, that's oh. what they call a cliffhanger, James. But is it a cliffhanger? It's not enough to say that I've drawn a picture. Let's it just is, say... It is, that's exactly it. James has drawn a picture. You what, I can, can you guess no, no, no. what it is? Can you guess what it no, is? No, no, no. I can say a woman in testicles, but that doesn't give away... Ah, oh, but you've ruined the no, I haven't hilarity ruined it. of it all. No, I haven't ruined it because you, Dan Brown, can see the picture, but the listener has no idea that this is here above that. Oh, Jesus. Come on, James. So what the, else do you want to say? So that, that um, is, that's the cliffhanger. Next week, the listener will find what is above what. No, anyway, the, 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 anyway, anyway, listener, whilst he's jabbering and listen. yabbering, <laughs> whilst he's jabbering and yabbering, that leaves me only to say it is goodbye from me, quite an emotional Daniel P. Brown, and I will see you next time. And I will see you next time, and in the meantime, you can work out what is above what woman and testicles. I've been James Hall. Goodbye. <laughs> it's a wonderful story.